Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. It's episode one, what are we, 163 of the God Stuff podcast, where we go bigger, better, and deeper. And today we're going deeper, a deeper walk with God. And my title is going to surprise you. Don't freak out. But this is from a series I did on the book of Acts a while back at Pathway Church. And the title is Our Turn to be Pentecostal, part one and part two. So our turn to be Pentecostal, part one and part two. This is based from Acts chapter two and the day of Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues and all of that. So don't freak out, but check it out. I hope you enjoy this. This is one of those summer podcasts where we're using sermons that I preached at Pathway to uh, to kind of fill out our summer. So as always, visit veritasschool.life. I ask you every time, but I hope one of these days you'll actually go there and just check out what's available for you. Veritasschool.life. Let's get into the message that says it's our turn to be Pentecostal. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the God Stuff Podcast with Bill Giovanetti, the home of grace-powered living, because grace isn't an app. It's an operating system. Here's Bill. This you. Thank you for being here. If you have your Bible, please open your Bible to the book of Acts and chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, quarter inch from the back cover. Exactly, precisely. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We will get there in just a couple of minutes. Christians believe that the story that began in the Bible continues today. God is still God. He is still active in the world today, in our lives today. He is still working, still shepherding, still empowering, still overruling and ruling, still guiding all of human history, all of our life's history, and all of cosmic history to its God-ordained and the story of the work of God continues even today. And the church is the central part of that story. That is, every Christian gathered together, the church is the central part of that story. Each one of us is born, we live, we die, and we live again as interconnected subplots in God's grand narrative. We matter, we make a difference. We're writing a part of the story, and what we do and what we don't do with God will make a difference for all eternity, specifically in the lives of the people that cross our paths. There is a book in the Bible that makes this exact point. It is called the Acts of the Apostles. For short, it's just called Acts. The book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. It was written by Luke. Luke was a medical doctor, and Luke was also sidekick to who was the person who was probably the greatest Christian leader and missionary ever in history after the Lord Jesus Christ, and that would be a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul. So we are spending our summer listening to God's message to us here in this book of Acts. The title of the series is called Our Turn, Lessons from the Book of Acts. And today, we're coming face-to-face with one of the most remarkable coolest places in the Bible, Acts chapter 2. Here in Acts chapter 2, Dr. Luke describes what is called the day of Pentecost. You may have heard this word, you may have heard this story, I'm not sure, but we're actually going to spend a couple of messages, today's kind of a setup, for what is going on in the day of Pentecost in the Bible. There's so much awesomeness here, and honestly, there's just so much weirdness here that we're going to do 
devote more than one message to this topic. So the topic today, are you ready for this? It's our turn to be Pentecostal. <laughs> Stick with me, all right, hear me out. So what I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna put on the screen, Acts 2 verses 1 through 41. Got it? <laughs> I know it's too small, I get it, I get it, but I kind of want to show you the flow. There's a lot here, which is why we're going to be taking more than one message to go through it. But we start at the top there with the event. A big event happens, we'll get through that, 1 through 13. Then in the middle, you have the explanation. The explanation comes by way of a sermon through Peter. Peter stands up and preaches. All of that to explain the events. So that's verses 14 through 36. We'll just barely scratch the surface of that part. And then at the end, you have an invitation, verses 37 through 41. And Peter gives a salvation invitation. Over 3,000 people get saved. So let's start at the beginning. We're going to start with the events. And let's just look at the first part of Acts chapter 2. So I'm going to read it, and then I'll go back and explain it. Because for some of y'all, you're like, well, I, this is just gibberish. This makes no sense. So let's just read it. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Aren't you glad you came to church today? So that's the main event. That's the thing that happens that triggers everything that goes on in this chapter, and everything in this chapter is trying to explain just that event right there. And I want to break it down one kind of factoid at a time, starting with the day on which this happens. So here we go. Number one, the day is a feast day called Pentecost. Okay, so the day of Pentecost was one of three great feast days in ancient Israel. On this day, every Jewish male traveled to Jerusalem. In fact, the city of Jerusalem would swell many times its normal population for the feast day called Pentecost. What was happening in that age was that Jewish people had been dispersed all over the world. So they were in every nation of the world. And on this day, they were all to make a pilgrimage. The men were to make a pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. As centuries passed, they were becoming less and less Jewish, less and less Jewish in how they dress, less and less Jewish in their style, their culture, their clothing, even their language, though they stayed generally true to the Jewish faith because they kept coming back for these feast days. The Feast of Pentecost was 50 days after another Jewish holy day called Passover. That's why it's called Pente, 50, Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover. It was also called the Feast of Weeks, it was also called the Feast of Harvest, something that we'll come back to probably next time. So the events of this day happen on the day of Pentecost when there are Jewish men gathered to Jerusalem from all over the known world. Now, the events happened to a certain group of people, and these people were all the Christians who were gathered waiting for the promise of God to come true. This is Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, we saw this a couple weeks ago, we looked at this in the Bible, where Jesus turned on his anti-gravity abilities and floated up into the sky and ascended all the way to heaven. 
He ascended. He went up. So in theology, that event is called, cleverly, the ascension, the ascension of Christ. But just before that, Jesus said something to his little gathering of believers, and he told them to wait in Jerusalem. And they're like, Jerusalem? We live in Galilee. We want to go home. No, go to Jerusalem. Now, Galilee was kind of like backwater hill. It's like saying, Ono. Oh, we live in Ono. Oh, <laughs> we want to go home. And Jesus is saying, no, wait here in the big city of Reading. No, I mean, <laughs> you need bigger. But So this is, uh, I'm read from where Jesus talked to them. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. We'll come back to that little phrase, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So here's Jesus telling them, the Holy Spirit's going to do a big thing. You need to wait for it. This is specifically called the promise. So that's what they do. They're hanging out. They're gathered together. They're waiting for this promise. They don't know what it means. Waiting for the big thing God had promised through Jesus. I mean, we spent a long time just on that, but that's the who. The day of Pentecost, and it's the Christians. Basically, all the Christians are right there. Not COVID. And suddenly, the, the, uh, this thing happens, right? So this is number three. The Spirit, this is the third person of the Trinity, came in power with both visible and audible manifestations. The first manifestation, as we read, was the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. Many of you know that I grew up in Chicago. What you might not know is that I grew up literally living under the approach path to O'Hare Airport. At that time, the busiest airport in uh, the country. And they later kind of reconfigured how the planes came in. But as I was a kid, every three and a half minutes, an airplane flew overhead. And I'm talking about like one of the big jets flew overhead every three and a half minutes. Conversations stopped. I mean, I know we'd be like, we'd be having a phone call, talking with your friend or whatever, and this noise would happen, and you just stopped because you couldn't hear them. And they couldn't hear you. And they'd go, What was that? And we got so used to it, we go, What were you talking about? What was what? Well, it was the sound of an airplane going overhead. When the Bible says there is a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, I remember those airplanes going overhead on their way to O'Hare Airport. The first manifestation was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. This is the Holy Spirit coming down in power. The second miraculous manifestation was this visible thing of like a fire, but not a fire, because nobody got burned. Tongues as of fire, it says. And this appearance of this fire then split up so that a bit of it landed on every Christian there. Can you imagine? Whoosh! And then on every single person here. Nobody was burned, but it was this visible manifestation as a fire. We've talked a lot about the wind and the fire, but let's move on. So two manifestations here. One was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, like an airplane going overhead. And two, the tongues of fire splitting up, landing on all the heads of all the Christians there. I told you it was weird. Number four, the Spirit's main manifestation was the believers speaking in tongues. 
You may have heard of speaking in tongues. This is the mother of all of that. The followers of Jesus were suddenly able to speak in tongues. And on that day, what that meant was probably not what most people think. They were suddenly able to speak in human languages. Tongues means languages. I speak the English tongue. I also speak some pig Latin, all right? <laughs> human languages they had never studied, never took classes in, never learned from their parents, never knew before. And these languages represented most of the known world. Normally, when you're talking to churchy, Christian-y people today who talk about speaking in tongues, this is not what they're talking about. The modern version of speaking in tongues, and we're not going to talk today about whether this is legit or not. I think there's room for it. But the modern version of speaking in tongues is not what you have in Acts 2. It is not speaking in languages. Instead, today's version of speaking in tongues is what is called ecstatic utterance. And what that means, ecstatic utterance means syllables coming from the mouth without meaning from a person in an altered state. That is ecstatic utterance, and that's how most people today talk about speaking in tongues. Now, I want to set all of that ecstatic utterance aside, because ecstatic utterance is not what happened on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the believers had a sudden and miraculous ability to speak in human languages they had never known before. So says the very next paragraph in Acts 2. Pick it up at verse 5, where it says, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the jet landing, the crowd came together. And this is a very big crowd, multiple thousands of people, and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans, hillbillies from Ono? No offense, I love you. How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and blim, 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 and districts of blim, blim, and visitors from Rome, both the Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues. It means languages. Speaking the mighty deeds of God, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're drunk. Okay, now remember, this is the Feast of Pentecost. For this feast, people had journeyed to Jerusalem from all over the known world, and no matter where they came from, they heard their own language being spoken by the Christians. And they were speaking the wonderful works of God, according to verse 11. So just imagine this scene. You've got uneducated Galileans, and they're speaking fluently all the languages of pretty much the whole known world. And they're all praising God. They're praising him for his grace, and they're praising him for Jesus and for the cross and the resurrection, for the exodus, for the parting of the Red Sea, for the resurrection, for the walls of Jericho falling down, for the parting of the Jordan River. It's all the wonderful works of God are now being declared in every language represented there. And it's absolutely amazing. So that whatever else speaking in tongues meant on this day, it meant the powerful declaration of things God has done to bless his people 
which in other words, is a powerful declaration of what we call grace. They were hearing the work of God in grace for his people. So that was the speaking in tongues, and that's what it was about. And the fifth lesson here, all these manifestations are said to be signs of the filling of the Spirit. Luke says so right there in verse 4. It says, and they were all filled with the Spirit, and all these things happened. Now we'll come back to this. But I want to point out that the filling of the Spirit gave the people of God a supernatural ability to proclaim the grace of God. That was the main thing. It was supernatural because of their mode of speaking. They were speaking languages they had never learned before. But it was also supernatural because of the content of their speaking. They were speaking the message of the amazing grace of God, the wonderful works of God. If you were here for lesson one, back in our series, you will remember, and this is a lot of people mess this up, there's a difference between what is supernatural and what is miracle. Those are not the same thing. They overlap, but they're not the same thing. Speaking in language you have never learned before, that's miracle. It's supernatural and miracle. Speaking about the grace of God, that's not a miracle. You go do that this afternoon. But it is supernatural. This is a really important distinction because everything the Spirit of God does is supernatural, but that doesn't mean everything is a miracle. And if you're stuck in this this hamster wheel of always looking for miracles, you are going to miss most of what God is doing in your life. Because most of what he does isn't miracle. It's supernatural because it's God, but it isn't a miracle. So here we have the setup. Here we have the first part of that long chapter. This is the main event of the day of Pentecost. And now, as if God knows that this is really confusing, he has Peter stand up to explain all of this. A crowd has gathered. Many thousands of people have gathered. They're probably located now near the temple. They heard the noise. And now they've, they've heard these Galileans proclaim the grace of God in their own language. Some of them are amazed and want to learn more. Some of them are scoffers. They just say the whole thing is a drunken frat party. And up stands Peter with one of the greatest sermons ever delivered. So we have uh, covered then the first section, which is called the events. And now we come to the explanation. So let me see what you can see. All right. I think you can kind of see. Some of this is in all capital letters. Like here, I'll just show you. That's in all caps. Trust me. And that's in all caps. And that's in all caps. And what all, this is Peter's speech. And the stuff that's in all caps is how our Bibles indicate when one part of the Bible is quoting another part of the Bible. Specifically, when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament. They put it in all caps so you know Peter is quoting the Old Testament. And I want to show you, before we get off the screen, one, two, three sections of that. Your life is better because I just said that. All right. <laughs> so this is now the explanation. And let's just get into it. All right. Here in verse 14, says, but Peter taking his stand. Now, remember, crowd has gathered, thousands of people. Some are interested. Some are calling them drunk. Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. God is doing something awesome among his people. The onlooking world comes and makes their judgments. 
All right? Luke uses several different words to describe the crowd's reactions. Confounded, verse 6. Amazed, verse 7. Marveled, verse 7. Amazed, verse 12. In doubt, verse 12. And mocking, verse 13. And this is always going to be the case. You get a mixed reaction. We can be the most godly, the most true, the most loving, the most logical, the most holy people in the world. And people are going to look at us and they will be confounded, amazed, marveled, in doubt, and mocking. Some will be impressed. Some will be annoyed. Some will want to know more, and some will scoff. Because no matter what we do in the power of God, at the end of the day, it's the condition of the other person's heart that's going to make the difference. Because you or I, I mean, we, could, we can preach and proclaim and share in the love of Christ, and if that person has a hard heart, it's just going to bounce off, bounce off of them. It's not getting it. And that's why we consistently pray and put names up on the wall to pray that God will soften the hearts of our unsaved friends, that the Spirit of God will just run the plow through the soil of their hard hearts so that the seed of the gospel can take root and they'll be receptive because you can stutter your way to the story of Jesus and his saving work. You can stammer every syllable, but if the heart is soft, they'll receive it and they'll be saved. Amen. It's a condition of the heart. Now, I've studied Peter's sermon here many times, pretty much every time I see something more. And this time for today's message, I found something here that, is, that really blew my mind. And I'm going to do my best to communicate it. And I'm even more blown away because I've never noticed this before, even though it's actually hidden in plain sight, which is why I'm saying give this, this is part one of at least two parts, okay? So next verse, verse 16. Now, I took the all caps and changed it to italics because I think all caps is hard to read and it's shouting. So this is Peter, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, here's the first quote from the Old Testament. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Pause. What just happened? The spirit came, big sound, tongues of fire, speaking in languages. Peter says, this is that which is spoken of by Joel. He's explaining it. And you read the verse and you go, that's not much of an explanation. But it, it really is, though it's a bit confusing. And it shall come to pass in the last days, the days when the Messiah has come, says God that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. Not italics, an insertion by Peter. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All that italic stuff is a quotation from Joel, okay? So what is going on here? Peter is explaining the whole thing, the speaking in tongues and the filling of the spirit and the noise and all that. He goes to the Old Testament. He's talking to Jews. They know their Old Testament. And not only that, he's talking to people who were likely also there 50 days earlier for the Feast of Passover. When Jesus was crucified, they knew what was going on. They had heard of Jesus, most likely. They know he was crucified, most likely. They know that there were at least rumors that he'd risen from the dead, most likely. They knew their Old Testament. They knew those verses in Joel. This was familiar territory for this group of people. So Peter goes to the Old Testament. He's speaking to Jews, and he's 
thinking, he's thinking like a lawyer. He can make this case from the Old Testament. And just because it's in scripture, it's decisive. It's determinative. Because the Old Testament is, was, and always will be for the people of God, the word of God. And God's people respect it as the final authority. When the Bible speaks, we listen. So when Peter quotes, they listen. And Peter quotes the prophet Joel. Joel wrote 800 years before Peter. He's eight centuries B.C. All right. Now, here's three quotes from the Old Testament. I'm not, we're not going to get into all of them today. But I kind of want to show you what he does. He makes three, I showed you already, three Old Testament passages that make three points. First point, the Savior Messiah will come and his coming will be marked with the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the result will be salvations. That's the first quote here from Joel. Second time he uses the Old Testament, point two, the Savior Messiah will die, but he will be raised from the dead. And to prove that point, he quotes from David in the Psalms. And then the third batch of all caps, Point three, the Savior Messiah will be exalted to the throne of glory, and only when he is enthroned can the fullness of the Spirit be poured out. That's the third batch of all caps. Again, quoting from David in the Psalms, you cannot understand the day of Pentecost without understanding Peter's sermon, and you can't understand, cannot understand Peter's sermon without understanding these three Old Testament quotes. This is about the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is about the church's great mission, above all else, of evangelism. Because if you've read this chapter, you know how it ends. 3,000 people get saved in one day. I would love to see that. 3,000 salvations. And none of this makes sense without understanding these three Old Testament quotes because they provide the inspired apostolic explanation of Pentecost. So I want us to understand them. Permission to go deep? All right, me and you, it's just, just us. So I wanted to set up the logic, and I'm stripping this bear because at every point here we can go, you know, I could, I could really kill you with length here, but I won't. So I know this is really a lot of info dump today, but stay with me. So I'm trying to make it clear. What is Peter saying? From the beginning of Scripture, the greatest blessing a person can enjoy is fellowship and friendship with God himself. Can I get an amen? I mean, listen, we take this for granted. I mean, any of us who've been Christians for a long time are like, yeah, God is my friend. I'm in a relationship with God. I have fellowship with God, blah, 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 blah. It should blow your mind. God Almighty wants your company. I mean, give it at least three seconds to blow your mind. So this friendship and fellowship with God, too. This is what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. This is what they lost in the fall. Thanks, guys. And so now there's this natural craving in every human heart to go back to God. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. Sin created an alienation. It created a breach in the fellowship. It shattered the friendship, set the human race under condemnation from the justice of God. So our fellowship and friendship with God is lost. Three, it is this fellowship between us and God that Jesus Christ restored by his redeeming work. So that, for none of this is new, right? You've heard all this. The ultimate promise in Scripture is that we can walk day by day in the presence of God himself. And again, it ought to blow our minds, but we're kind of used to it. I wake up, and Jesus is with me. God is with me. I do my thing today. God is with me. I get in the car. God is with me. He's also with the people in the other lanes to protect them from me. <laughs> I hang with my wonderful family. God is with me. God goes with me. He walks with me and he talks with me. 
and he tells me I am his own. That's the ultimate promise to have the presence of God in your life. Nothing revolutionary there. Until Jesus returns, our fellowship and friendship with God is experienced mainly through the Holy Spirit. The Father, he's in heaven. No one can see him or has seen him at any time. The Son, Jesus, he's also in heaven in the glorified body, sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. So two-thirds of the Trinity in heaven. But the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God can be present in his fullness with every believer everywhere all the time. And the big deal about the Holy Spirit is that he mediates the presence of God in your life. Jesus said so, uh, John 14, 17, look it up. The Holy Spirit is in you and will be with you. God with you is the Holy Spirit. And to have the Holy Spirit in fullness is to have the presence of God in fullness. To have the Holy Spirit in fullness is to have a restored fellowship and friendship with God in its fullness. One more. We cannot experience the presence of God. We are alienated from fellowship and friendship with God until the redeeming work of Christ is fully complete. It is this last truth that knocked me in the head this week. It is this last truth that Peter emphasizes. It is this last, last truth that once a gathered crowd on Pentecost understood number six on that screen because Peter preached it, once they saw that in Scripture, they, it says they were cut to the quick and they rushed to believe in Jesus as their Savior. And the cool thing is that when Peter preached his sermon and he had stuff to prove, like he quotes a whole section on the Old Testament said the Savior would rise from the grave. He saw that with his own eyes. There were people there who saw that with their own eyes. He could have had them, each one, come up and bear witness. I saw the risen Savior, but no, he didn't do it. Do you know what he did? He opened the Bible. He pointed to the Bible. It says right here, Jesus, the Savior, will rise from the dead. And that was a stronger proof than the eyewitness testimony and the experience of people. The Bible is all you need to prove the truth of God. I've been talking with Margie and trying to figure out how to illustrate this last point here that Peter is saying, which is really what Pentecost means and why there's all these things are connected here in Acts chapter 2. So here's my illustration. When a space shuttle is launched, a lot of factors all have to be ready to go. Every system has to have a green light. Every key has to be turned by every person, every part of the team, every element has to be perfectly in place for the launch sequence before they're ready for launch. I looked this up, at T minus nine minutes, the launch controller for the shuttle conducts what is called a pole. He takes a pole, which means they ask every system controller of all systems are go. If all systems are go, the countdown resumes until launch and we have blast off. Illustration, what will it take to restore a fallen person to fellowship and friendship with the holy, almighty God. Answer, it will take the fullest completion of the redeeming work of Christ. Okay, so question, what are the systems, what are the elements of the redeeming work of Christ? 
We can list them out. We start with the plan of salvation in eternity past in the heart and mind of God, a covenant between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We go to the incarnation when this whole thing kicked into high gear, Christmas Day when God became human without ceasing to be God. We have the sinless life of Christ. We have the crucifixion of Christ, shed, shedding his blood on Calvary's cross. Then the resurrection of Christ. And then the ascension of Christ when he went up to heaven. And then one more, player to be named later. We call this list the career of Christ. We actually studied it point by point by point in a series called Christus Victor a little while back. And with this list, we have all systems green except for one. There's still one key not yet turned, one green light not yet lit up, one element in the redeeming work of Christ is yet undone and therefore outstanding before a sinner can be reconciled to God until a person like me can actually enjoy the fellowship and friendship with God I was created for. So what is the last piece of the puzzle that is not yet in place? And this is the big deal on the day of Pentecost. This is the big deal in Peter's sermon. In fact, Jesus said what was the last element in John 7, 39. Jesus said, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit who mediates the presence of God, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet what? Glorified. You could take out this word given. In fact, you should cross it off. It's not in Greek. The Holy Spirit was not yet. No, he existed. He was active. There's more going on here because Jesus is not yet glorified. Jesus taught that Peter paid attention because in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, this is the glorification of Christ, and having received from the Father the promise, i.e. the Holy Spirit, i.e. the presence of God in its fullness, he poured out this, which you now see in here. What is the final element? We have the plan of salvation, the incarnation, the sinless life of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and then the enthronement of Christ when he took a seat on the right hand of majesty on high. In theology, this is called session, which is the Latinized version of taking a seat. Jesus sat down on the throne of heaven. Jesus was seated and enthroned in heaven. The enthronement of Christ was that final elements, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, the enthronement of Christ is the final missing green light. The moment Christ was received up into heaven and was glorified. That was the moment when the entire work of redemption after all of time was finally complete. In that moment when he sat down, in that moment when he took his throne, in that moment, our fellowship and friendship with God was finally and forever and fully and without reservation available to all who believe. And think of that moment. Think of what happened when Jesus ascended to heaven and walked through the doors into the throne room of God. What was that moment like? I have no idea of how time transpires in heaven for the angels and the believers there of ages past. What's a clock in heaven? I don't know. But that time when the Son of God in his incarnation was on earth and not in heaven, who knows what that was like in heaven? But now Christ has been crucified. He has broken the grave. He has risen again Again, and he has ascended to heaven and then he walks into heaven and heaven's 
throne room welcomed him, welcomed him with open arms. I mean, who can imagine that moment? Who can imagine those celestial fireworks? Who can fathom the heavenly choir singing hallelujahs? Who can scratch the surface of the joy in the heart of God? Who can penetrate the mystery of the Father's approval on his beloved Son and the Spirit's outpouring of blessing on Christ and the fanfare and the sheer joy and the abounding love and the deafening roar and the frightful vision of holiness and the pomp and the circumstance of King Jesus, the God-man now rising up to his full stature. And after long last, this one who still bears the scars from the crown of thorns, whose hands and feet still show the wounds from the nails of the cross and whose side still is scarred from that spear and whose visage still shows the memories of the old rugged cross at a horrible moment of his death. This one, this Savior, this Lord, this friend of sinners, this one who is flesh and blood, who to the eternal consternation of Satan sat down at the right hand of the throne of glory and seat of majesty and honor and glory. And in that moment, heaven erupts in a roar of applause and the demons scream and run and flee to their doom. And Jesus now sits in glory at his father's right hand who has no promise to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. What a moment. Can you imagine that? What glory. What beauty. What a savior. What a salvation. What redemption. But there was more that happened in that moment because in that moment when Christ sat down, the father was the launch controller and he took his pole. He said, plan of salvation in eternity past. And the Trinity said, yes, green light. Incarnation, the son of God born into the world. And the son of God said, yes, green light. The sinless life of Christ and all the saints who knew him cried out, green light. Yes, the crucifixion and the angels said, we saw it. Green light. Done. The resurrection, all of heaven roared. Green light. The ascension and the Father proclaimed green light. Here he is. And the enthronement and the Son of God proclaimed with all his might. Blast off. Green light. It is finished because the enthronement of Christ finally turned all systems green. The enthronement of Christ meant the completion of all that had to happen to give us the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. And this is the big point, the big deal, that when Christ took his throne in heaven, Pentecost took place on earth. That was the moment, and the Old Testament promised it. And that was all it took for 3,000 people to listen to the Bible and get saved. The Spirit came in his fullness when the Son of God sat down. We have the earthly story. The Holy Spirit came, they spoke in tongues. This is the cosmic backstory. Christ sat down in heaven and all lights were green, all systems go. And this means that for the first time since paradise was lost in the Garden of Eden, fellowship with God finally restored, friendship with God complete, the plan of salvation finalized, redemption fully accomplished and now applied. All lights are green for you and for me and for anyone who believes in Jesus to get to walk with God day by day in a beautiful friendship and fellowship with him. This is the heart and soul of the day of Pentecost. And this is why I say it's our turn to be Pentecostal. Because at its core, being Pentecostal isn't about speaking in tongues or doing cartwheels in church. It's not about signs and wonders. It's not about the rushing wind and tongues of fire. None of that even made it into Peter's sermon. To be Pentecostal means to believe in the presence of God through the Holy Spirit in your everyday life. To be Pentecostal means to have a testimony 
of grace so that you can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's all. It's our turn to be Pentecostal. And we're going to go even deeper into what this means next time. Let's bow in prayer and we'll wrap it up for today. Lord, what a wonderful truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing story, but even more for such a wonderful Savior. We are eternally grateful to you, Jesus, for what you did. And we honor you and magnify you as the one who sits on the throne of heaven by rights. And you have inherited all things. So, Lord, we bless you. We praise you. And we thank you for being such a great Savior with such a great salvation. And all God's people can say. Thanks for listening to the God Stuff Podcast. Find out more at GodStuff.tv.